Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Justin Beals, co-founder and CEO of StrikeRaft, a security compliance platform that's raised $12 million in funding. Justin, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on, Brett. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building at StrikeGraph, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. I'm the CEO and co-founder of StrikeGraph. I think if from a background perspective, I'm a serial entrepreneur Mostly, I'm involved on the technical side. So a VP of product, a chief technology officer. I started out my career in software engineering, web application development, and moved over to the business side over time. Amazing. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur. What CEO do you admire the most? And who is it and and why? So I read that you like this question. And I have a little bit of an off-ball answer. I don't know that I have a single CEO that I you know, desperately look up to, not that there aren't great ones, but I think when I think about organizations that I try to emulate or just the culture and impact that they've had, I really think about Nintendo. You know, I think about the resilience and longevity. You know, It's a century-old company. They've been building amazing games since they started, and they've survived these massive shifts in technology from playing cards to video consoles, video game consoles. And so I really look up to kind of the constant innovation and the impact they've had and their ability to build on all that they've learned to be really powerful force in the marketplace. It's the first time someone said Nintendo, but I'm happy someone did because it is, it's such a cool company to think about. You know, I'll always remember like exactly where I was and I was like five and the Nintendo 64 came out and I was like, whoa, this is game changing. How can they get graphics to be this good? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as you get to study the history of them a little bit, you realize that they're just gobbling up a relationship with consumers in a really valuable way where the consumers always look at them, you know, in a heartfelt perspective. Yeah. And why do you think that is that Nintendo doesn't seem to get a lot of attention? Maybe it does and I'm just missing it. But I feel like I I study tech a lot. I study entrepreneurship a lot. And Nintendo seems like one of those companies that everyone knows is massive. But it seems like not a lot of people talk about them. Why do you think that would be? They're probably not as flashy, you know, on the outside. Maybe that resonates with me. They don't need to make a massive splash. They want to build an amazing product. And with a product to succeed in the marketplace because it's the better product. And maybe something that we could look at that we try to emulate in the tech space is something like product-led growth. You could probably see Nintendo as a pioneer in that realm. Super interesting insight. Now, what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you? And this could be a business book or it could just be a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. Yeah, Brett, I am not a big fan of business books. I don't read very many, but a long time ago when I was just starting to build companies couple of years out of college, I read a book called How to Start a Record Label. And that was, of course, the type of business I was trying to start at the time. And they had a really great piece of advice. They said, um, always act like the company you want to be. And so one of my first companies I built, we bootstrapped it as a sole owner. But I, I tagged all my emails as partner, just so that 
people would imagine that maybe there was more than one partner than just me at the organization. So that that's the business book that's had the biggest impact on my life. <laughs> I love that. You're coming out strong. The The first two answers are two answers we've not heard before. So I appreciate the uniqueness of the interview already. Oh, that's great, Brett. Yeah, I, I think you know one thing I am constantly reading and consuming is science and history information. And I think that's just, I have a passion for it. But I also think it puts me in, in a mode of innovation and thinking about what can be built and what is possible, which is, of course, what every startup is doing, right? We're, we're operating on the fringe of what business has done before and trying to create a new opportunity for our investors, our employees, and our customers. And to zoom in on the, the comment you made about history, is there a specific period of time or a period of time in history that you really are you know, studying now or just really fascinated by? Yeah, I just wrapped up a lot of interest in uh, deep geology. I think there's a interesting story being told about not just one supercontinent in the Earth's history, but multiple supercontinents. And we're starting to find geological evidence for that. And it's very mind-blowing to imagine that the continents have split apart and come back together over the hundreds of millions of years that the Earth has been around. And then lately, I'm kind of eyeball deep in Egyptian history because it's the anniversary of Tutankhamun uh, find. And so there's a lot of interesting articles coming out about it lately. Nice. Is there like one book that you can think of on Egyptian history that's worth reading or good to read? Not on Egyptian history, but I have a really good history book that I definitely think is worth reading. The name of the book is 1491. And the book is about the population characteristics of the Americas prior to Columbus arriving. And some of the more recent archaeology pushes forward a theory that the population size was massive, much bigger than we thought it would be and that the effect of disease on the Americas may have killed as many as 80% of that population. And so it is a little bit of a shift on our understanding of who was here already and kind of also what was happening during colonization and what people were experiencing and seeing. Nice. That sounds like a good read. I'm very burnt out on business books. I feel like now they just say the same thing over and over again with a different cover on it. So very refreshing to hear some new book ideas here. I'm glad, Brad. And look, if, if you need to learn about business, books are a good place to go. I just have, I think after you spend enough time in the trenches, you're right. The themes are very well known. And, and mostly what you're focused on is making sure that what you know to be true about business is being applied in an effective way. Yeah, someone tweeted something about that the other day. And it's like, you know, it's not necessarily like access to information. Most people have that now and they know what they need to do. It's more the execution and what you do with that information. And that's where people struggle. So it's not like another book is going to solve the problem. It's, you know, just execute on what you already know. That's the art of what we do, right, Brett? It's not in the knowing the skill, but in balancing all the effect of applying that skill, whether it be being a CEO, a founder, an engineer, or a fine artist, right? Yep, absolutely. Now, something else I'd love to ask you about, you know, let's talk about your journey going from being an engineer on the technical side, and I think you mentioned CTO, to the business side and eventually being CEO of StrikeGraph. What was that transition like for you? And what were some of the challenges you faced along the way? And just anything you can share there, because I think it's going to be really interesting to our listeners, because a lot of them are founders who are transitioning from technical roles to being CEO and being founders of companies. Yeah, I was really interested in doing it fairly early on. 
in my career as an engineer, but I didn't have access to capital. And I think the first company I founded that found success was I, we founded that company in about 2000. And what I was really looking for was honestly a cultural environment. I was looking for to build a company that had a culture that allowed for a sense of creativity in the work that really appreciated human beings for being more whole than just filling a job description. And uh, hopefully found some really exciting impact to have in the broader marketplace and community. And so I think I went from being an engineer to seeing what was the easiest type of company to build at the time that I had the resources to, which was a services business. And so I founded uh, Roundbox Global in 2000. And between 2000 and 2009, we grew our company to 130 consultants globally. And I was the sole owner. We never took on any venture capital. We were doing about 10 million in revenue annually when um, we found a good buyer for the business. And it was, you know, it was kind of my MBA, Brett. You know, that was the school of hard knocks, uh, making sure customers renewed, finding great talent, getting them on good teams, sourcing good products, investing in the company in the right places so it could grow. And I would say that I just put my mind to it a little bit. I literally just jumped in with both feet and then kind of suffered what happened. I don't know that that's the best advice for any tech entrepreneur. I will say this big lesson learned is that if your expertise is on the technology side, if you're a great engineer, a CTO, someone with an awesome idea that knows how to build it, what you need to bring along in partnership is someone that knows how to sell software and market software. And notice that I also said the word partnership there, because I really believe today that it's not a good idea to be a sole founder. It's very painful for that person emotionally. Sure, you get to make all the decisions, but that's also a danger unto itself because you make wrong assumptions really easily. And if you're that inventor, that engineer inventor, what you're looking for is someone that can take that idea and encapsulate it in such a way that people are going to pay money for it. This is not just building a product. It's making that product sustainable through a really viable business. Makes a lot of sense. And that resonates a lot. And that's something that I hear from a lot of founders, right? Is that the founder journey is lonely. So if you're just a founder on your own and you have no one there who's you know in the trenches side by side with you, it can be very lonely and a very sad place. Yeah. All the worst problems roll right up to the top, right? <laughs> the, the one that folks may not want to solve on their own or they're struggling with. And so it does feel all day long like you you got a little hammered for really intractable issues that, you know, are, are tough. And having a co-founder, a partner in the business, leaning on your board as critical mentors and advisors is exactly how you should build that team. Love it. Another transition I want to ask about is the transition from a services business to a tech company and playing you know, the, the venture capital game, which you know sounds like you're building based on the 12 million raised. Has that been a difficult transition for you to navigate? Because it's you know two very different styles of business, right? Yeah. Building the product has not been tough because in between building a services business and founding StrikeGraph, I acted as a CTO or as a product lead for a number of startups. And so I did build up some skills around how do we deliver a great product to the marketplace? How do we listen to what the marketplace is asking for? What I've been challenged with in the transition, what has been new to me, is certainly understand the mathematics of venture capital investing and what to prioritize from an optimization perspective. 
getting the board involved, finding the right board members, building a investor community and finding the right investors. I actually was nervous about that, but I've found it very enjoyable. And I think I'm just lucky. I've, I've been, you know, I've had great introductions to really amazing people that have had a great influence on our success. So we saw that as, as very exciting work. I definitely did. Nice. Very cool. Now let's finally talk about StrikeGraph and dive deeper there. So can you start with just telling us the origin story behind the company? Yeah, so I was a CTO at a company here in Seattle, Washington area. We had an AI product. We would predict the likelihood that a job applicant would be a high performer. And it was a great product. We were getting a lot of interest from buyers. And to get the most powerful predictions, we need to get the most amount of data at a higher quality. And so our ideal customer profile was like a Fortune 50 type business. And we got a lot of interest. We're getting verbal commitments to buy, but then it was taking a year and a half to get through the procurement process. And what we were finding is that about nine months of the time was spent in this security review because they were sharing really sensitive data with us. And this was the first time as a CTO, I'd ever heard of something like a SOC 2 audit or an ISO 27001 certification. You know, I'd always implemented good security, but I've never had a buyer ask us to certify that security practice. And so, you know, it's tough on the company on growing it quickly. When you can't grow a company quickly, it's difficult to attract new investors. And we eventually had to find a buyer, and I'm really glad we found a great buyer, and, and the product still really thrives with their management. But the problem stuck with me. How do we get really efficient trust with our buyers that we can close these deals much more quickly? It also dawned on me that now security is a sales asset. And that was never the perspective that security had in any business I'd ever worked. It was always a cost center. It was always something we wanted to minimize. You know, it was always this nagging feeling that you think is keeping you from success. And to have this opportunity to treat security practices as a sales asset to certify companies so that they can facilitate business more quickly. I thought it was a great problem space, massive market, huge value, really not difficult engineering to solve the problem for. So that's that's what led me to try and dive into this area. And this could be a dumb question, I'm sure it is, but SOC 2 compliance, you know, I see that at the bottom of websites, I see all the companies announcing that they've achieved it. Who's behind SOC 2 compliance? Like who's doing those authorizations in the first place? Like what does that group look like that's doing this? Yeah. So to have a valid SOC 2 audit performed with a real report, it requires a expert in security testing and a certified public accountant. So I just want to qualify because this is a little bit of a confusing space as you pointed out, Brett. Being compliant with SOC 2 means that you might self-assess. You might say, I believe that I am compliant with SOC 2. You might say, I bought this piece of software that tells me that I'm compliant with SOC 2, but I haven't really been tested for it. And the problem with that is what's going to happen is you're going to get to a really important buyer. You're going to have a big contract on the line. And they're like, no, I'm, I'm looking for the actual audit from a CPA. I'm not looking for you to just self-assess your ability to be compliant. And then you're behind the eight ball because now you got to go through this whole testing process. And so what StrikeGraph really provides and we help our customers receive is literally being compliant with SOC 2. So let's 
get a good security posture in place. Let's design the security that matters for your business. Let's distribute that activity amongst your organization. And let's collect evidence automatically so that we prove that you're doing the security. We then do the testing to the SOC 2 standard, and we work with independent certified public accountants to provide the final attestation. That is the gold standard report that you want to hand over to a buyer or a procurement department to see, say to them, we have been independently assessed on the SOC 2 standard and passed the assessment. That makes a lot of sense. And I have to guess that this is really non-negotiable, right? There must be a huge portion of enterprise organizations that won't buy from a company that doesn't have SOC 2 compliance. Is that accurate? Almost all of them. It is such a pervasive requirement. And that is what has expanded this marketplace so quickly. When I first learned about this, you could kind of get around the edges a little bit and maybe get in there and you know, try and get them to say yes, but not anymore. Our customers tell us it's do not pass go without this particular audit accomplished. You will not receive a contract. It will be very difficult to operate in the marketplace. And then what's the time savings that you're offering to your customers? You know, how long does it take to get to compliance if they're using StrikeGraph versus if they were to do it on their own or to, you know, hire someone else to do it? Yeah. You know, typically in the past, what someone would do is they would hire a consultant to help them kind of spend time designing that security posture, you know, teaching someone how to operate it, and then kind of hand collecting these screenshots or emails or calendar invites or pieces of evidence from your cybersecurity practices that would prove that you operated it. So StrikeGraph has essentially eliminated any need for consulting to do that initial process. So we've taken down what might have been a three to six month timeline to a week or two at most just to get your security posture out the door. Typically to go through an audit, you want to collect between 30 days and six months of that first amount of evidence, you know, the receipts that you turned everything on, you said you would, that you have the policies in place that you said you would, and then it can go right into audit. And the testing phase for us is very automated. We've been investing a lot in the technology to make that very efficient. So it's really just a couple of weeks before a report can be turned around and you have the sales asset ready to go. Wow. And how do these consultants view companies like StrikeGraph? Because it sounds like you're, you know, in a way, eating their lunch, right? And you're, you're taking up the customer base that they have and automating it with the platform. So are there consultants who are hostile and reject the idea that this can be done via a platform? Yeah, we see that a fair bit. And honestly, the people that struggle the most are the audit firms, you know, which have been the teams that were the most consultative in practice in their business model. I get that they don't like, it takes away their intelligent impact that they might have. The problem is that it's not that big of a problem. There's certainly some decision-making to be made about what the right security posture is, but it does not take a deep expert. And that's one of the really neat things about our platform is that we guide our customers through exactly what you need to implement from a security posture based upon the risks you identify for us. And the machines that we provide are so intelligent that they make the recommendations that a consultant might have made. I think also what we're starting to do, not starting to do, I've been delivering on, is really the testing as well. 
And it's that testing portion when it comes from technology that I think has an independence and transparency that you can't get from a consultant. And we've seen this in a lot of industries where technology brings a sense of independence and transparency to the certification or the analysis that you can't get from just an opinion from an individual. I don't know what to say about it. This is a change that's happening. You know, it's like the tide is shifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, StrikeRoute's mission is really just to help accelerate that and bring those types of innovations to customers' doorstep. And is there a sweet spot for you in terms of adoption? Is it, you know, startups that are like seed or series A, or what does that look like in terms of where you're seeing the most adoption? Yeah. So I'll start at the most broadest categories and we could drill into where we like to focus. Really, we help customers along the entire journey. So we have customers as small as five or six employees that are just getting started that know that they need to achieve one of these certifications and we're able to help them get through it quite quickly. We also have customers that have thousands of employees that are using StrikeCraft to get multiple certifications. And we've really pieced together one technology to drive through that journey over years with a customer as they mature and grow. Our sweet spot has been companies that are 50 employees and sometimes I think the smallest of organizations, they're really looking for a magic wand. They're, you know, what we say is that we can't operate your security for you. You need to do that. And we want the certificates and reports that you get to be ethically validated so that they carry the weight of trust that you want in the marketplace. It doesn't do us any good to cheat the system, so to speak. That's not what we're in the business of doing. And so it does help to have someone that's a little mature in the role of driving security to work with us. And we find that at that 50 employee floor, uh, they hire someone for it. And how many different certificates are available on the platform today? Yeah. So today we're doing SOC 2, ISO 27001. And then early next year, we're spinning out our HIPAA and GDPR certifications as well. Across the platform, we support a number of different standards as well, the ones that I've mentioned, but also things like PCI DSS, the CMMC standard, which is a Department of Defense standard. And then we also just did the NIST 853 standard as well. And that's National Institute of Science and Technology. Now, each of these standards can sometimes have slightly different assessment methodologies. And what I would say is that 90% of companies, all they need really is that initial SOC 2. But then when you decide you want to go into the health tech space, we're going to do HIPAA 2. Then if you're really starting to focus on Europe, then you might want to do ISO 27001. So you can see these stages, right, where we're, we're an early startup, we're doing SOC 2. We're hitting about 100 employees. We may think about another vertical and another standard that we want to utilize. And then as you're growing 200 or globally, you're going to start adding in the ones for the other geographies that you're starting to operate in. And when it comes to these standards, what's that life cycle look like? So who comes up with the standards? Who decides that they're going to be, you know, the standards for the market? And then is that regulatory that requires them to be followed or does this become embraced by the industry and that just becomes what's expected if you're going to work in that space? Yeah, really the buyers, the procurement departments, the people that manage third-party risk at companies, 
they have coalesced around standards that they support. And we're seeing a lot of commonality across all the buyers. I will say that certain verticals will have, the buyers in that vertical will have a certain standard that they're looking for. And so, you know, certainly as you're adding on a a vertical like healthcare or health tech, you're going to see HIPAA pop up, right? Now, the authors of the standards are different. You know, a lot of different groups have done it. I think the biggest group that we think of when we think about standards bodies and defining standards is the ISO body. And they, not only ISO 27001, they have a slew of other standards that they've written for everything from manufacturing to biosciences. The SOC 2 standard was written by the AICPA. So that's the group that represents certified public accountants. And it's built on top of what they understand from a financial audit process perspective, looking at security processes. And so that's where that one comes from. But then you have ones like HIPAA, that's a law. And it certainly has a regulatory impact. But if you can get that certification and independent assessment to the HIPAA law, then now you have a sales asset. And so the buyers are looking for those types of sales assets. Got it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then is it like continuous compliance? Do they need to reassess these every year, every six months or every couple of years? Does it just depend on the standards? Definitely standards can drive how often an assessment or audit must be performed. But there's some pretty broad truisms about how it kind of works. The first is, is that all of them expect that you are operating the security posture throughout the year. And that's why you're using StrikeGraph. Some is that you say, yeah, these are all the security practices we're doing. And throughout the year, StrikeGraph is collecting the evidence to prove that we did those security habits. So that's really important. It's like, you don't want to go into financial audit missing June and July's bank records and your ledger. It would, you know, the financial auditor might not really like that. And the same for something like a security audit. You really have to have that proof throughout the year of what you're doing. Now, you have to once a year, once a year, you need to get the audit accomplished. And that is where the testing happens and the report is produced that throughout the prior year, you have been operating those security practices. So it's an ongoing thing. And then there is a point in time where the assessment is done and you receive your renewed certificate. And then as you go throughout the selling year, you can reuse that certificate for as many customers as you want. Got it. So that would answer the question then on the business model side. So it's still recurring revenue then every year, I'm guessing? Yeah, we're annual recurring revenue. It's an annual subscription. We have a really uh, nice way of bringing a single price for the certificate outcome that you want to achieve. So if you're looking for a SOC 2, we have a bundle price, everything's included. And it's just a very efficient relationship between StrikeGraph and you to making sure you get that sales asset accomplished that you wanted to achieve. And I know we talked about the time savings there, but what about the cost savings? So let's just talk about SOC 2 compliance. What's that you know rough price with you? And then what would they be paying if they were hiring a consultant to do it? Just to understand that comparison. Yeah, so consultants, we've seen consultant prices for the entire design of your security posture, implementing that security posture, and going through the audit, you know, upwards of 50 to 75K. And StrikeGraph delivers all of that solution, the audit, the preparation, the management of your security posture, really for usually 
17 to 20K. Yeah. Wow. So it's huge savings then. It's a big savings. I think from another huge savings from a time perspective is, is that since you're only dealing with us, a more typical relationship would be, hey, we have a technology vendor that, you know, we're kind of storing some data on around compliance. And then we have a consultant that's helping us and we have an auditor. So we have these, and we have a penetration testing team. So we have these three or four vendor relationships that I have to coordinate to get this one thing accomplished. And that's not the way it works with StrikeGraph. We were able to provide all of that solution through our organization. And how do you think about market categories? Is the market category security compliance or what's your market category? Yeah, I think the broadest market category that we think of is non-financial audits. A non-financial audit is usually a process audit or assessment. And that's essentially what our customers want to buy. You know, they want to buy an ISO 27001 audit or a SOC 2 audit or a HIPAA certification. And that's what we deliver. Now, to get them there effectively, we have a lot of technology that helps them organize and implement the security needed to be efficient and collect all that data. And the main reason we're collecting that data is that once we get it in our system, we can really easily apply technology-driven testing. Got it. And then are you working with firms like Gartner or Forrester to really be part of that category conversation? Or what's your view on creating categories with analysts? Well, we've had to. I think, look, one of the mistakes I made at StrikeGraph is we should have been a G2 a lot earlier than we were. (laughs) The second I founded the company, I should have started setting up our G2 profile. But we operate in multiple categories when we work with analysts like that. So some people will approach us as a constant compliance or a cloud cloud compliance solution. Some people will approach us perceiving us as a almost like an audit and certification firm because that at the end of the day is what they're trying to buy. And some people look at us as like security orchestration. So I'm trying to find a tool that will help me organize my team around security, the tasks they need to do and the evidence we need to provide. To me, it's like trying to say that an album is only one category of music. They probably have a ton of influences or trying to solve a couple of different problems. And similarly, we think by combining what was piecemeal technology from multiple categories, we have a much better customer relationship, much tighter on the value prop. And therefore, we see really good retention and customer upsell opportunity. Yeah. So do you envision this as a category creation play at some point then where all of these different fragmented categories will be combined together into one super category that you own? Or do you view it as you know, the super category isn't really relevant? I think it could become a super category. I think we are pushing the leading edge of what you should expect from a vendor in this place. And so there'll probably be some creation around it. But I get the tension that Gartner and and these other teams must feel. It's like uh, they don't want to fragment the marketplace even more because the categories help them drive vendor selection. But nobody wants to, you know, in such a vibrant technology opportunity, you really just can't wait to say, hey, we live in a category. You need to really lean in and be like, how do we solve the customer's problem? And so I think it's a push-pull. We're probably constantly going to be balancing it. And the thing that I don't want to do necessarily, Brett, is, is it takes a lot of energy to invent a category. So I think I'm perfectly happy just popping up in everybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> 
I like that perspective. Yeah, a lot of people come on, they talk about creating a category, and I think they don't realize that it's, you know, very, very hard, very expensive, and it takes a long time. And you're going to lose a lot of the low hanging fruit deals by just accepting that you're part of someone else's category. So I appreciate yeah. again, the, uh, the unique perspective that you're bringing to the show. Thanks, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> and one question on G2. How critical has that been for your growth? Is Are we talking like 5% of sales maybe come from that or start from there or like 50%? What does that look like? I would say it's 10% or less of our opportunities come through something like G2. But what has been really powerful is that instead of having in the sales motion to do a lot of customer references, we can actually point them at all the great reviews that we have on our G2 page. And so that's made the sales cycle much more efficient. And what's a typical sales cycle look like for you? Is that something that's yeah, a decision that's made within weeks or months? Oh, weeks. Yeah, the average is 30 days or less, really. It's been amazing. Now, I've definitely had other products where we had long sales cycles, year and a half, year, especially when we see big enterprise deals, that takes some time. But you know, when you talk about creating a market category versus operating in a space where people are already setting aside budget, know that they need to solve a problem and trying to solve that problem, that's the difference, right? Like we don't need to educate our customers on the fact that they need to solve this. Their buyers are telling them that they need to solve it. And so they're coming to us saying, I set aside budget and know I need to buy a solution. I'm looking for the best solution in the marketplace. And then they look at StrikeGraph and they're like, oh, this is really the product I would want to buy. And so that's how we win the deal. Well, you guys are in the, a dream position, it sounds like, because you don't need to make the case to customers for why now. And I think that's what a lot of the startups that are out there today and just a lot of the founders that I interview, they're constantly facing that challenge, right? Where they have to convince the market that they need to solve a problem that they maybe didn't even realize they had or you know didn't realize was a solvable problem. So for you, you're in a dream position, right? The market is telling them that they need you, that they need a solution like yours, and then they start looking for one. Yeah. Now, there is one downside to this, and that is, is that there is more competition in the marketplace. You know, it's had a longer time, like compliance and software used in compliance solutions have been around since the first spreadsheet, probably. So that's one of the things that, especially in talking, when I talk to investors that we have to discuss quite a bit is that this is a massive marketplace. There are competitors in it, but that's okay when you have a great product you're really hitting the metrics that you want. And what are you doing to stand out against such an aggressive competitive landscape? I've seen you know, a few vendors that, I don't know if their product is as good as yours or does exactly what you do, but they're definitely trying to solve the same problem. And I've seen a few of them raise, at least last year they did, You know, they, they raised FU money yeah. for no better way to describe it. And yeah. I see their billboards you know, all over San Francisco, and they're, they're definitely deploying that cash. So how are you competing with these startups that have raised big money? Yeah, first is on the product. So the major differentiation is that we deliver the certification. We're not just an API collector into your cloud environment for our expected evidence that we think your auditor might want. We close the loop on exactly what you want to buy. And that's really important in the sales motion from a differentiator. You're coming to us not as a piece of technology that makes up compliance, but the solution to my compliance problems. I think that with that strength of product and strength of discussion, you know, we certainly haven't had the cash resources to buy the billboards, 
But in every place where we're competing, we're winning the deals we want. And that's allowed us to also really craft a better product market fit. One of the things I like to say about our particular marketplace is that if you took the old adage of you hit a million dollars in recurring revenue and you have product market fit, you could be sorely mistaken because people are so desperate to solve this problem that you could get a million in ARR on what is just literally problem market fit, not a real solution. And you're incredibly vulnerable because you've raised at a massive valuation that you will likely never live up to. And you're deploying cash at an incredible rate of speed. You're still only an 18-month runway on a hundreds of millions of dollars type of raise. And so to me, I it's not how I like to build businesses in some way, Brett. We can build a great product. We can be a market winner. We can achieve everything that our competitors have. And we won't put the marketplace at risk. We won't put our customers at risk. We'll put our employees at risk, and we definitely won't put our investors at risk. Very, very insightful. And so relevant today, I think, too, because I think you know a lot of these companies that did raise the FU money last year are now going to be in a lot of trouble when they go to the next round. And I think a lot of the companies that you know were competing with these FU money startups you know, were sweating it last year as they were battling it out. But now they seem to be calming down a bit and, and seeing the opportunity. And it sounds like that's definitely the case for you as well. Yeah, we're still growing really quickly. We've been clicking right along exactly where we want. I'm really proud, you know, from a traction perspective, you know, we're well over 200 customers at this point. We're kind of regularly hitting, you know, 3x types of multiples. And we have a really exciting two to five year journey here as we really revolutionize with technology, the actual testing to these standards. And I think that disruption It's going to be a ton of fun to deliver to the marketplace. I love it. Last question here for you. I know we're up on time. If we zoom out into the future, let's talk about that journey. What's the three-year vision for the company? What's it going to look like? Yeah, I think from a three-year vision for our company, we would definitely like to, you know, see a a triple, double-double type of situation for us from a growth perspective. So it is a lot about growth. We feel like we have an amazing product. We're seeing that type of growth today. And to hit some of those growth, what we're actually focused on is less about just adding teammates to the team, but really optimizing the impact each of us has as teammates. In some ways, it seems harder, but I also think that it is the right type of motion to get the company to scale. And in the next three to five years, you know, we want to be ready for a great Series C fundraise or Series D type fundraise that allows us to really carve out a massive part of this marketplace. Amazing. Well, that's an exciting vision. And this has been so much fun. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, strikecraft.com is a great website. If you're interested in solving for these compliance problems, we have a ton of information on there. And it's really easy to schedule a demo with one of our amazing account execs. It's really awesome. We promise that we try and make those really useful from an opportunity to learn about your compliance initiative and what you're trying to achieve and give you some critical information about how to be successful at it. And if you're interested in me, the social media that I hang out on is LinkedIn, which means I'm uh, turning into a business guy, Brett. Maybe I should read more of the books. And I've been um, using Mastodon lately as well for you know kind of a little more public uh, social media presence. Amazing. Justin, thank you again for taking the time. This has been a blast and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. 
Thanks so much for spending the time with me, Brad. It's, it's great to meet you and uh, connect with your audience. Let's keep in touch. 